You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. Okay, we are uh, continuing on today in our series through the book of Acts. Uh, the series we're titled, we've titled First Century Lessons uh, for the 21st Century. And to prepare to come to the Lord's table today, we're going to read a passage from Acts chapter 5, uh, Acts 5, 27 to 42. Uh, before we do that, let me give you a little context because I just, for in, in the interest of time, I've skipped a little, so I'll just I'll bring you up to speed. Uh, as this uh, fledgling Christian movement has gained traction in Jerusalem, uh, it has been, of course, ex- expanding dramatically. And as a result, the religious establishment, uh, partly driven by jealousy, uh, arrests all of the apostles, not just Peter and John this time, but all the apostles, and locks them in the public prison in Jerusalem, which was a very uh, public act of shaming. But during that night, that very night that they were imprisoned, the apostles uh, were supernaturally delivered from uh, the jail by an angel. And that angel then tells them, no sooner are they released than they, they must go and stand in the temple and speak to the people. And they waste no time doing that. At daybreak, the apostles are in the temple standing, speaking to the people uh, about the gospel. Uh, in the meantime, the same morning, the Sanhedrin uh, convenes a meeting uh, for a hearing about the apostles, and the apostles are called to appear and instructed to be brought uh, to the Sanhedrin to to appear at this hearing. And uh, that begins sort of a a chain of embarrassing events for the Sanhedrin. Uh, They go to to get the prisoners, and they find that the jail is locked. Uh, The guards are in place, uh, but the prisoners are gone. And uh, while they're scratching their heads about that, some messengers run into the Sanhedrin and say, we know where they are. They're in the temple preaching. And so the Sanhedrin uh, uh, orders them to be brought. Uh, They are not re-arrested. They're brought in uh, gently. Uh, They're actually afraid of the people at this point. Uh, but they are brought, all the apostles are brought uh, to the Sanhedrin. And that's where uh, we pick up uh, the story in Acts 5, starting at verse 27 and reading through verse 42. Uh, it's printed for you in the bulletin if you don't have your Bible with you. And I'll have you stay seated again because these narrative readings are, are longer. This is God's word. And when they had brought them... They set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. 
The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the, that the, that the Christ is Jesus. This is God's inerrant and infallible word to us today. Let's pray as we get into it. Living God, help us hear your word today that we may understand it and that understanding it we may believe it and that believing it we may follow it in all faithfulness and obedience to you, seeking your honor and your glory in all that we do through Jesus our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, this has to be a shorter communion sermon. Can't uh, dive into everything here. So I'm going to do three things, okay? First, we're going to just mention briefly some what I'm calling miscellaneous but important lessons that that come out of this event. Uh, And then second, we're going to focus on the apostles' message. We've heard it before already. Um, this isn't new, but it's important. And then third, we're going to unpack uh, the metal of the apostles. And by that I mean M-E-T-T-L-E. Uh, their bravery, uh, their boldness, um, their uh, willingness to take risk and face danger, and their surprising ability to have joy in the midst of very real suffering. I want those things. I, I want to be more courageous. I want to be more bold. Uh, I, I want to uh, be willing to uh, face risk, and I want, to, uh, I want to have joy in the midst of suffering. 
and I suspect you do too. So we'll, we'll, we'll learn a lot about that here. So first, a few miscellaneous but important lessons to us from the first century. Uh, first, number one, risk, not rest, is the Christian normal. Was true in the first century, it's true in the 21st century. I get this from the part of the text that I summarized, uh, verses 19 and 20, when the angel comes and, uh, and releases them from the jail. Uh, but no sooner are they released, I mean, they don't even leave, and, and the angel orders them right back uh, on mission, Right? Go and, and stand in the temple, and, 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 he, and he says, speak all the words of this life, meaning the life of Jesus. Right, they're going back into a situation that will be even more dangerous, even riskier, right? Uh, you know... I, I read that and I realize what we, what, again, the truthfulness of what we talked about, I think, last week when, when I said, you know, you know one, of the, one of our idols, especially in the American church, uh, is comfort, safety. Um, we tend to think that comfort, safety, the lack of danger uh, is, is what's normal. Uh, but that's not true for Christians. Uh, and uh, but boy, I've imbibed that, and I put myself in the disciples' place. Uh, had I been thrown in prison and, and subjected to that sort of public humiliation, and then released, right? My immediate temptation would be to, you know, pull back, right? Retreat into safety and comfort. After all, I've deserved it. I've just been in prison. Right? Time for a break. Uh, but not, not, for, not for the apostles, right? Uh, there's no pullback in God's kingdom. I've released you, the angel says, because you're on mission. You're deployed. Now go and speak and st- stand and speak in the temple. And the boy, they did. They did it immediately. Daybreak. They were there. Um, so it's a reminder that risk, not rest, is our normal as followers of, of Jesus. We are people on mission. And um, it's sometimes easy for us to forget that. It certainly is for me. Lesson number two. There are both human and spiritual forces at work against Jesus and against his people, you. Again, this is true in the first century and it's true in the 21st century. We're we're told that the opponents of the gospel here, who were the religious and political leaders in Jerusalem, uh, were jealous. Now that's a human dynamic, right? And, And it's... I get it, that's understandable. The apostles were getting uh, all the attention. The Christian movement had all the buzz, right? They had had the religious buzz, but they lost it, right? The, the, uh, the religious leaders had lost it. The, this, the church had, 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 was getting all the buzz now. So they're jealous. There's some professional jealousy there. 
but that doesn't begin to explain really the the their reaction to the apostles and to their message, right? Did you notice that the the religious and political leaders, when they confront the apostles, they can't even, they're so upset at this that they can't even mention Jesus' name, right? Didn't we instruct you not to preach in that name? That name? They won't say Jesus. Um, Also, were you as surprised as I was? I mean, it's a little, you don't, I mean, we didn't read it, but uh, it's right there at, as, at where we picked up the story. The, the disciples get, you know, supernaturally released. They're in the temple preaching, and nobody asks how they got out. Right? If I'm a member of the Sanhedrin, and I've called, and I've just been embarrassed. I've called, you know, I've called for the prisoners to be brought forth. They're not to be found. Messenger runs in, says, we know where they are. They're in the temple. Wouldn't you say, how did they get out of the jail? But not one person is recorded to have asked that question. I don't know. It's arguing from silence, but I suspect they didn't want to know the answer. Right? They had to know. Something was up. Something uh, was going on. There's already, you see, what, what Paul talks about in Romans 1 as suppressing the truth. Unbelievers suppress the truth that they know. And, and that's already beginning to happen. But the most significant thing I see here in their opposition to both the apostles and the message is, is just how kind of out of proportion it is, right? It's how out of bounds it is. It's over the top. It says in verse 33 that they were enraged. The the Greek word there literally means sawn in half, right? Like sawn in two uh, to to sort of express just the emotional pain and rawness of their anger. They were enraged, and not only were they enraged, they wanted to kill them. This is, right, these, what that suggests to me is something very important, and we need to remember that that there is a spiritual side to this conflict. Uh, That that the opponents of Jesus um, are being influenced by the spiritual forces uh, of darkness, the spiritual forces of, of Satan that are arrayed against God and his people. Uh, you know, we tend to think, and, and it's, we have to be careful, um, in this day and age, it's very easy to construct a, a narrative <clears throat> that explains that things are getting worse, worse and worse and worse and worse for Christians. And therefore, we need, you know, we, then we kind of develop this siege mentality. And, and, and in fact, you know, you, you look at history and you look at the book of Acts, uh, th- things are, were, were bad then. I mean, worse for them than, than, than they are for us right now, at least where we live. Um, we, we just we need to remember that that Christianity 
will all, has always been and will always be opposed. It's been opposed since the fall uh, at, at the, in the Garden of Eden when the seed of the woman was set against the seed uh, of the serpent. And uh, it, 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 that has begun, a, that, that began a, um, you know, a conflict that continues uh, to this day. Uh, so, so don't be surprised, friends, as you watch the news and as you, uh, as you testify to the truth of Jesus, to your unbelieving friends. Don't be surprised about, uh, if, if you get a, a pretty emotional, virulent, anti-gospel reaction. That's nothing new. Remember, Paul rightly warns us, are, we aren't, we're, not, we're not battling flesh and blood here. Right? It's, we're, we're battling the, those, those, those spiritual uh, authorities uh, that lay behind uh, so much of the opposition to the gospel. Okay, that's, that's lesson two. The final third uh, miscellaneous little lesson here. In Dr., our own Dr. Dennis Johnson's words, um, I'm quoting from his Acts commentary, uh, the vitality and the growth of the church is itself testimony of the fact that Jesus is not the dead leader of a failed movement. And right, he's, he gets that, of course, from what, uh, what Gamaliel uh, said. Uh, that name, Gamaliel, might be familiar to you. He was, uh, we will learn later on in Acts, he was Saul's, Saul of Tarsus's mentor, uh, his teacher. Uh, and, uh, of course, Saul of Tarsus goes on to become uh, the Apostle Paul. It would not be surprising at all if Saul of Tarsus, soon to be Paul the Apostle, was at this Sanhedrin meeting because he was a disciple of Gamaliel. It may, it may be that he's Luke's source for what happened in this council meeting. Uh, but Gamaliel was known, was, was a revered rabbi. He was uh, and, and known for his wisdom. And he was wise here, wasn't he? Right? He, 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 he points them to history. Uh, points to other failed messianic movements. He cites two of them, uh, which are attested in history outside of the Bible. Uh, and there were others uh, as well. And all of them failed, right? Typically brought down in a vicious way by Rome. Uh, the, 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 the messianic leader was, uh, was uh, viciously brought down as a as a warning to the people, and all of those messianic movements then just broke apart and failed. And uh, he said, "Look, right? If 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 this is just like those, th- then we really don't have to do anything. This this will fall apart on its own accord. But if God's in it, right? It's not going to fail, and we may find ourselves opposing God. So just back off and let's see what happens. Again." suggests to me that Gamaliel's looking at the facts, he's seeing things and wondering maybe there is something to this uh, Christian uh, movement. Um, and of course his argument only gets stronger as time passes, doesn't it? Only 2,000 2, years on now from, from his 
initially raising that argument and Christianity has two and a half billion followers, uh, amen, two and a half billion around the world and growing annually. Um, Now, I know that doesn't prove that Christianity is true, but it is a piece of evidence. It's certainly a, a, a good piece of evidence that Jesus is not dead uh, and that the, that the movement that started around the reality that he re- was risen from the dead is not a failing movement. Right? 2,000 years on, it's still a growing movement. Okay, those are the, the, some miscellaneous uh, lessons. Let's get to the second point, which is the message uh, of the apostles. This is at verses 29 through 32. Um, and it's really, I think, the center of the, of the uh, account. As I said, we've heard this before. Peter is speaking for the apostles here. Um, and he's, he's pulled this sermon out of the can. Right? And, and in other words, he's, he's preached this one before. Uh, and the fact that he has and that it's been and it's recorded multiple times in the book of acts uh, it, it demonstrates that god wants us to hear it right um, and we especially need to hear this message as as we come to the table because really what peter is verbalizing in very simple terms here is exactly what the bread and the wine are silently speaking to us as we come uh, come to the Lord's table. So what's the message? Uh, you killed Jesus by hanging him on a tree. God raised him from the dead. God exalted him uh, at his right hand as leader and savior. Why? For what purpose? To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And finally, And we, the apostles, and the Holy Spirit saw all of this happen. We're witnesses to all of this. Okay? That's Christianity 101. That's that's the Christian uh, message in a nutshell. A couple of clarifying points about what Peter says here. Uh, First, when he said, you killed Uh, Jesus by hanging him on a tree. Of course, that's a reference to the cross. When he's saying you, he was pointing to the Sanhedrin, probably particular members of the Sanhedrin, who were directly involved in the plot to kill Jesus. But as we said a few weeks ago, uh, because Jesus went to the cross for my sin and my guilt and my shame, that, that, that that it is true that in an indirect but very real way, I participated in the killing of Jesus. He's hanging on that tree because of my sin. Because of your sin. We killed Jesus. Uh, That's the first thing. And second, notice what Peter says he gives. He doesn't just say that Jesus gives forgiveness for sins. That's true. But what he said is he gives repentance repentance and forgiveness. That's, that underlines the fact that 
as much as I'd like, as we were coming towards the Christmas season, it, it would be easy for me to say, you know, the Christian message is peace on earth, goodwill to every man and woman on the planet. But that's not the Christian message. Uh, forgiveness of our sins is not an automatic, universally applied truth. It's true for those who repent. Right? Which means, repent, the Greek word that we translate repent, literally means to change your mind. To change your mind about Jesus. To change, to, to you know, go from one who doesn't really give Jesus much thought to acknowledging Jesus as Lord and Savior. To go from a person who is decided to follow his dreams and, and instead decide to follow Jesus and pursue Jesus' dreams, Jesus' desires. But that repentance... Peter is saying, even repentance is a gift from God. It's, it's, again, underlines how comprehensive the salvation is that we receive here, right? Um, you know, we need to repent to receive forgiveness. Without repentance, none of us would receive forgiveness. But if we don't get, get the gift of repentance, none of us would be, would be able to repent. Our hearts don't naturally do that. So now you may be sitting there going, hmm, I wonder if I've received the gift of repentance. Well, let me ask you, have you repented? Um, and, you know, repentance is not just a, a, a one-time thing when you walk down the aisle at a, at a Billy Graham event. Uh, repentance is, as Martin Luther reminded us, something we must do daily as we uh, are, are be, become a increasingly aware as followers of Jesus that no matter how much we are sanctified, no matter how much we grow in the faith, there's still that gulf between us and God. We still don't love him with all our hearts and love our neighbors as ourselves. Uh, repentance is a, is a lifestyle, right? It's, it, 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 if, if you're doing that, You've received the gift of repentance and, you've, and you have received forgiveness for your sins. Celebrate that. Celebrate that when you come to the table. All your sins, past, present, and future, are under the blood of Jesus. They will never be held against you. Maybe you're here and you're, you would not identify as a Christian, but you're sensing a call to repent. You're sensing uh, that Jesus is calling you to turn, change your mind, turn toward him, follow him, trust him, obey him. Act on that call. And, 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 you'll, and, and you will receive not only repentance, right, but you'll receive uh, forgiveness for your sins. And last point, by the way, you know, Peter said that this repentance uh, is for Israel. Did you notice that? Repentance for Israel and forgiveness of sins. Now this, this doctrine will get developed more as we move through Acts and into Paul's letters, but uh, the, the, the point, the, the bottom line is it is for Israel, and by God's grace, we've been grafted into Israel. Right? By his mercy, we, we who, 
who, you know, most of us now, Gentile Christians, have been spliced into the the trunk uh, that is the tree of Israel. So that by God's mercy and God's grace, the promises to Israel are now promises to us as well. Right? We, is, we, we, Israel's story becomes our story. Israel's history is our history. Israel's destiny is our destiny. Okay, third and final point. That was the message. Now let's look at the medal. Uh, the courage of the disciples. Um, their boldness, their willingness to take risks. Um, not to retreat into safety and comfort. Um, this amazing ability to uh, rejoice in the midst of suffering. And by the way, they really did suffer. Um, I, you know, it's, it is interesting, right, that they take Gamaliel's advice, but they, they had to get their licks in, didn't they? Okay, yeah, Gamaliel, it's a good idea. We'll let him go. We won't bother. We won't, we, we'll we'll kind of let him go. But we're going to beat them first, right? Uh, The word here is the word that is used for flogging. It almost certainly means the 39 lashes. 39, with that short uh, whip that contains pieces of pottery and bone and metal that tears your back apart. You know why they stop at 39? Because 40 was deemed capital punishment. These people were beaten, these apostles were beaten to, within an inch of their lives. Right? This wasn't a wrist slap. And they probably had to be carried out of there. Yeah, clothes stuck to, the, to their backs with blood. Um, this, this was an ugly, deadly uh, uh, event. Um, and yet they rejoiced. And, and at that dishonor, and of course it was dishonoring because you were stripped, you know, tied to a stake uh, and, and then beaten. And of course you would involuntarily scream and things. It was, it was a shaming thing. And yet they, they regarded that, as, that dishonor as being a, a high honor to be able to go through what Jesus went through. Well, how do they do it? Where, do they, where does that come from? Well, it, the, the secret is in the message that, that, uh, that Peter gave. Uh, in verse 32, when he said, we are witnesses to these things. We're witnesses to these things. See, they actually saw Jesus live. They saw Jesus executed. They saw Jesus raised from the dead. They watched Jesus uh, ascend to heaven to take his place at the right hand of God. But they didn't just see these things, friends, like, you know, like, you know, like we watch the news. They're just some kind of neutral facts out there, you know, sort of free-floating facts. No, they... Do you see what Peter calls Jesus here in verse 31? He says, it's, it's an odd kind of pairing. Uh, you, you don't see it much. Leader and Savior. Leader and Savior. Probably you've heard Lord and Savior, or, but leader and Savior. Um, the word translated leader there is a rare Greek word. 
It's, it's literally arch-ego, it's ar- archegon, um, and it's used only four times in the New Testament, twice in Acts, twice in the book of Hebrews. Every time it's used, it refers to Jesus, uh, and it is a notoriously hard word to translate. Um, leader doesn't really do it justice. Better is, is captain or prince uh, or even author. Um, it, it, you get the you sense that this is not an easy word. The best word probably there be, is, is champion. Champion or hero. And, and one of the reasons I say that is because these two titles, leader and savior, were given to someone that was well known in the Greco-Roman world. His name was Hercules. Hercules. And he was celebrated as champion and savior. Hero and savior. Hercules, man, if anybody's a hero or a champion, it was Hercules, right? Um, it's very interesting that, that, that here, Peter, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, is taking these titles given to Hercules and giving them to Jesus. Right? Um, point here, right, is that the apostles didn't just witness Jesus living, dying, rising, and being exalted. They witnessed Jesus doing those things as their champion. Right? as their best representative fighting their battle with the outcome of the battle totally in that champion's hands. Right? Remember, you know, you've probably heard enough about ancient Near Eastern warfare that this is somehow, sometimes how military engagements were settled, right? Two armies facing off against one another. And if you, sometimes what they would do is each army would send out its what? Its champion. Right? And, and that champion was representing the whole army, and the fate of, that, of the whole army was in, the, was in his hands. The champion was their best fighter. Right? That was what Goliath was for the Philistines when they faced uh, Israel. Um, So Jesus, the apostles recognized Jesus as, as he's, he's not our, just our savior, he's our champion. He fought our battle. The outcome was solely in his hands and he won. Right? Now, and Jesus won that battle, but not like most, cha- we, not like we tend to think of champions as winning. Right? Um, Jesus, I mean, if anybody was a superhero, Jesus was a superhero, right? Think about it. I'm not a Marvel nerd or a DC nerd. I know we're all a lot of you guys are into superheroes, right? And what that defines a superhero is a guy that has superpower, right? Well, Jesus had superpower. He had all the power in the universe. But Jesus didn't use his superpower as a champion, did he? Jesus won that battle as a champion by laying aside his superpower. And not just laying aside that power, I won't use it, I will, I'm going to die. Right? He, the only way he could win Jesus 
The only way he could save you and me was for him to die in our place, to pay the penalty of justice for our sins. In the 2008 movie, Gran Torino, Walt, uh, Clint Eastwood plays Walt Kowalski, a foul-mouthed, and I underline foul-mouthed, okay? If you guys are going out and renting Gran Torino. Foul-mouthed, offensive, racist, um, widower, and cranky old tough guy um, who uncharacter- he lives by himself. He uncharacteristically befriends some uh, Asian neighbors. Uh, he, he's prejudiced against all foreigners, but he, he uncharacteristically makes friends, in, in part because these Asian neighbors are being subjected to violence from Asian gangs, the systemic Asian gang in their community. Um, and, and, and Walt kind of comes along as a protector, and throughout the movie, he's, he's doing these typical hero-like, tough Clint Eastwood things, right? It's like giving you the cold stare. Um, you know, snarling, um, cussing you out, punching you out, right? He, he, he was the t- just, you know, the c- typical Clint Eastwood champion. And you expect, as the movie's going on, that he's going to be the champion who, in typical Clint Eastwood style, is going to destroy the gang members who are endangering his friends. But that's not what happens, because what Walt realizes uh, in the end is the only way to break the back of this systemic gang violence, which has just rooted its way into his community, is for that gang violence to be, to be spent on him. To, to let all of this, the violence, get focused on him and let him extinguish that gang violence in his own body. And so that's what happens. He, he plans it, secretly plans it, and, and ultimately allows, puts himself in a position where the gang members kill him, exactly what he wanted to have happen. Um, and it is in that voluntary substitutionary death that the gang is destroyed. Because in, 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 in killing Walt Kowalski, the, 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 the justice is served and the, the police come in and the, the gangs are rounded up and broken up and, 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 uh, and the community and Walt's friends uh, enjoy freedom from, from this threat of, uh, of the, these, this gang violence. Walt was a champion by dying, right? And of course, that's exactly the kind of champion Jesus is. Um, my, let me quote one of my favorite verses, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Right? Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, the archegon, the champion and perfecter 
of our faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. <laughs> what, gave G- what gave the disciples the boldness, uh, uh, their boldness, their willingness to risk, their, their courage, their joy in the midst of their suffering, their ability to regard dishonor for Jesus as high honor, was the fact that they saw their champion live and die for them. They knew that they were the joy that was set before Jesus as he endured the cross. And friends, today, as you come to the table, you need to see your life, you need to see reality through the eyes of the apostles. In the bread and the wine, friends, see your champion. Your best representative. The one who fought your battle and won. To know you are his joy. You are the reason he endured the cross. And because he did, you are his forgiven, loved, and accepted child. Friends, as you see that, uh, as we see that, as we come to the table, we're going to be bold. That will make us bold. Uh, That will make us willing to take Risks and to not pull back, um, to consider any dishonor we receive as Christians uh, as an honor, uh, as as uh, uh, as people who follow Jesus, knowing what He went through for us as our champion. Amen. Okay, let's go to the let's let's pray as we go to the table. Father, we are. Uh, coming now to your table in obedience to your commands. And so um, we pray that your spirit would be here and, and use the bread and the wine to um, uh, strengthen our faith, to communicate with us, to, by your spirit, commune with us and, and give us newfound courage and boldness and, and a willingness, Lord, to, to, to behave in a way that uh, allows us to confront the risk of being your follower rather than to run from it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.